there's a certain sense of panic that can accompany the beginning of a dissertation. I know that I am not the only PhD candidate who feels this way. The knowledge that what we're doing could make or break our future ratchets anxiety levels up into the stratosphere. At the same time, there's also a feeling of excitement because we're finally setting off on the journey that we've been preparing for for so long. We know that one way or the other, the end is in sight. Or at least we hope it is. Now, whether that ending will be a good one or a bad one depends on how well prepared we were when we began and what kind of obstacles we'll run into along the way. Because there will be obstacles. They're unavoidable and they're not always the same for everyone. They could come in the form of family issues, mental health crises, or just plain old everyday writer's block. And sometimes challenges come from the research itself. Some researchers rely on interviews as a part of their data collection. If they can't get enough participants, then their research will be stalled. Of course, one rather large challenge is the simple fact that we need easy and reliable access to the scholarship that should be informing our discussion. We are expected to engage with existing conversations and create new paths of knowledge, but we can't do that if we don't have access to the research that came before us. When these obstacles appear, we have choices that we have to make about how to proceed down the path that we've created for ourselves. Some will push through, no matter the cost. Some will decide that there's too much at stake and that they can't continue. And some will meander down the path, taking their time until they can get back on track. In the end, though, only 50% of us will reach the finish line, successfully defend our dissertations, and walk across the stage. As for me and my choices, well, <laughs> I'm still not sure that I made the right one. Writing a dissertation is already a difficult task, and I decided to compound that difficulty by turning it into an episodic podcast wherein I'm writing 3,000 to 5,000 word episodes every two weeks. But this is the choice that I have made, and I'm going to see it through no matter how deep into the library I have to go before I finally emerge on the other side. Who I'll be when I make my way out is anyone's guess. What I do know is that I'm a little excited, a lot terrified, and ready to go all the way in and find out what's really hidden away in all those locked vaults. My name is Elizabeth Hedrick. I'm a PhD candidate in rhetoric at Texas Women's University. And you're listening to Anxiety in the Archives, my podcast dissertation. There's a difference between teaser summaries and spoiler summaries. Sometimes you need to give a minor spoiler summary to an important takeaway that you're utilizing right now in the current talk. Because they want to know right now and they don't want to have to stop and go back and you have them listening. Okay, so previously on Anxiety in the Archives, we talked about the creation and defense of my dissertation prospectus and how that prospectus is a roadmap for the journey of my dissertation. In these prologue episodes, we ever so briefly talked about the books that I'll be analyzing over the next few months, including Rachel Kane's The Great Library Series, Genevieve Cogman's The Invisible Library Series, Rod Duncan's The Fall of the Gaslit Empire Series, and A.J. Hackwith's Hell's Library Series. 
Each of these series deals with libraries and archives in different universes and time periods, and each of them are keeping secrets that could shatter their worlds. We also briefly touched on the topic of real-world libraries, what they mean to people, and how libraries and librarians have been perceived in popular culture. If you'll recall, there are often conflicting ideas about the nature of libraries and librarians, how they shape and guard knowledge, and what they might be hiding. Or you might not recall that, which is why I'm reminding you. Anyway, we also did a speed run through the discourse surrounding open access, the benefits of freely accessible knowledge, and how the opposition to open access has largely been driven by a former academic librarian named Jeffrey Beale. The discussion we had in the first two episodes is really just scratching the surface when it comes to Beale and open access. When I said we would get to all of that eventually, I meant it. But I also can't reveal all my cards too soon, right? You got So, before we dive into the stacks, I want to hang back for a few minutes more so that we can talk about something that will be important as we go along. Academia and the nature of grad school. The process that I'm going through and have gone through in order to put this podcast dissertation out there into the public matters as much as the actual dissertation itself. Grad school shapes us in good and bad ways, and our experiences shape the final project that we present to the world. Now, some listeners will already have a familiarity with the way that grad school works, but some won't. And I want to make sure that we are all on the same page for the most part, because honestly... Academia is a bitch, bro. First of all, academia is a very insular place. The students who work on campus as teaching assistants, research assistants, or graduate assistants may never really feel like they leave the scholarly feedback loop. And it's a very different place from the lives we lead in the outside world. It's often difficult for non-academic friends and family to understand what we're doing or why. Add to that the deeply hierarchical nature of graduate study, and you've got a recipe for depression and anxiety. And while no two experiences are alike, for many graduate students, the choice of advisors and committee members can lead to long-term consequences. Whether those consequences are positive or negative will depend on a lot, y'all. Now, I briefly mentioned academic cycles of violence in episode two. And while the truth is that not all graduate programs are created the same, and not all graduate advisors function in the same way, Abuse and mistreatment of graduate students is a common occurrence, and some abusers are well-known, but never censured. In a 2017 article, K.A. Amien writes about the abuse that she suffered while earning her Ph.D., arguing that abuse within the graduate student advisor paradigm happens because anytime you have a highly competitive system in which a single person has the power to make or break someone else's career, you will have abuse. Graduate advisors have almost absolute power over a graduate student's entire future, especially when we consider just how tight the academic job market is right now. Having an advisor that can open doors to jobs and provide needed connections is invaluable. It's very much a system based on who you know and what they can do for you. But favors aren't always free, And so some grad students will have to make choices about what they're willing to suffer in order to secure a good future for themselves. 
Unfortunately, this can also help to create that academic cycle of violence where a student goes on to become a graduate advisor who operates under the belief that if it was brutal for them, it should be brutal for everyone else. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, yes, sir. I consider myself very fortunate that my advisors come from a different breed of graduate instructor. Don't get me wrong. The PhD path hasn't been easy. I've worked hard to get where I am, and there have been more than a few tears along the way. But my advisors have never once made me cry. Okay, that's not true. I have gotten teary when they say nice things about my work, but that's neither here nor there. Are you crying? Am I crying? No, I'm not crying. You're crying. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that it's a bad system, y'all, and it needs work. But change can be slow, so we work to change the things that we can. Like turning our dissertations into podcasts, where we talk about books about libraries and how the villains in those books often seem to resemble real-world people who oppose free and open access. Because it all comes back around in the end. The content of this podcast and the forum are both about the need for accessibility. It's a lot harder to open the gates and let people in if adherence to tradition keeps standing in the way. I understand someone standing in the way of new discoveries. Researchers and professors often assault one another. Murder is not unheard of. In the introduction of a traditional dissertation, I would tell my readers about the steps that I'll be taking as I move through my research, the methods and theories I'll be using, and so forth. But this isn't a normal dissertation. I think we've all gotten the memo by now. However, we are still going to talk about where we'll be going from here because I have themes, y'all. So, in the first episode, I played y'all a montage of answers that people gave me when I asked them about libraries. What I used in that montage came from only a small portion of the people that I interviewed. Many of the answers that I got were specifically about books, but I also got some very in-depth and emotional responses about the feelings that libraries evoke, and not all of these responses were library positive. And that's okay, because the history of libraries in America does tend to be a little darker and more controversial than some librarians would like to admit, which is why we need to have a quick conversation about American libraries and the ideas of libraries as neutral ground. Now this ham-handed segue. In the last few decades, the subject of neutrality in libraries has become a divisive topic. Some librarians believe that libraries should be places that are completely and totally neutral and politics-free. Basically, they refuse to take any kind of public stance either for or against anyone. That doesn't sound terrible, I know, but there's a lot of context that can get lost when people spout off about libraries being neutral ground. Because, you see, if librarians really want to claim neutral space, this means, for example, allowing white supremacist groups who have been classified as hate groups to use public spaces within the library, despite how this may affect any other people in the library, staff, or patrons who aren't white. The ideas of libraries as safe spaces is sacrificed in order to maintain neutrality. And then there are librarians like me, who believe that neutrality is something that has never and will never exist in libraries. 
it's not something that can exist in libraries because not taking a political stance is still taking a stance, y'all, and we need to understand that. In the 2008 book, Questioning Library Neutrality, Robert Jensen explains that a claim to neutrality means that one isn't taking a position on that distribution of power and its consequences, which is a passive acceptance of the existing distribution. That is a political choice. Honestly, library neutrality, who libraries serve and who they should serve, is an incredibly complex issue that will be woven into almost every aspect of this podcast. So how do debates about library neutrality play into conversations we're about to have about libraries, open access, and the books that I'll be analyzing? It's all connected. Shut up. We're going to start with the theme of libraries and archives as places of infinite space and wonder, where every story that could ever be imagined is waiting for us on the shelves. The shelves are high and wide, and they seem as if they go on forever. This is the kind of space that we'll find in Cogman's Invisible Library series and Hackwith's Hell's Library series. These are vast places that expand as needed through mysterious forces so that the library always has exactly as much room as it needs. We believe that nothing bad can happen here and that this is a sanctuary, a place that is much more than just a lifeless repository of books or a static monument to knowledge. It's a sentient being and we respect it as we should. But libraries and archives aren't always a place of wonder. They can also be places of state authority where government officials make the choice about what can be read and by whom. This kind of library is portrayed in both Kane's The Great Library series and Duncan's The Fall of the Gaslit Empire series, where libraries and archives rule the world. They do this under the guise of protecting their citizens and keeping their worlds largely at peace, but that peace creates static communities that lack any kind of forward progress. When a governing body decides that they are the only appropriate arbiters of what people should be reading or inventing, libraries and archives can become places of repression very fast because society and the archive that shapes it is always subject to manipulation and interpretation. Those laws that the state authority created were written by people who are inherently fallible. Misinterpreting ideals that were meant to serve people in ways that will instead repress them and take away their freedoms happens all the time. This idea plays out heavily in Kane's The Great Library series and Duncan's The Fall of the Gaslit Empire series, but the repression of ideas for the greater good is also explored in Hackwith's Hell's Library series and Cogman's Invisible Library series. And so, inevitably, these carefully guarded libraries and archives will become places of revolution when the truth comes out. People finally understand that they've been lied to, so they make choices about the information that they've been given. These revolutions come in different forms in each of the book series, but they bring with them a question. Now that they know what has been hidden and why, is it right to take that information and spread it out among the general populace? The people who now find themselves in the position to release or further conceal information We'll have to make a choice, and the wrong choice could lead these worlds right back into the same situation 
that existed before. There was concern among us that it could lead to perverse consequences. Over the next few months, we'll get into each of these themes and we'll begin to understand the interconnecting systems that lead one into the other. We'll also look at how these themes are reflected in the conversation about open access. There will be three episodes in which to explore each theme because honestly, anything less than that doesn't do justice to such a big conversation. And I want to make sure that I give y'all all the information that I can so that if and when time comes, y'all can decide for yourselves how you feel about knowledge being freely available to anyone who wants it without restrictions. All this banned knowledge could be distributed without having an arbiter of what is good or bad dangerous or helpful. What do you think about when you hear the word library? I think wealth of knowledge, genuinely. I don't use them as much as I would like to, but I've got several friends that do, and just the amount of resources that are there that people don't know about, like movies and games and for like computer rentals and stuff like that. It, I think it's an important institution of learning, and I know that that's been kind of like a big subject of debate almost recently about whether or not they're important. I think they're very important. That's what I think, and that's how I think when it comes to libraries. And that's why we're here, right? We're here to talk about open accessibility to knowledge. Hopefully, if you've made it this far, I've given you some understanding of open access, the systemic issues baked into the academic world, and the need to talk about this in a format that isn't just black and white words on a page. My goal for this undertaking is to present my argument to you in the clearest way that I can. Now, before we end this and move along, I would like to revisit one of the most vital parts of this entire shebang, the all-important research question that is the fuel for every kind of academic work. There's a reason why you're here and a reason why it's now. In episode two, I told y'all that I wanted to find the answers to the following questions. How much of the opposition to open access stems from a social and cultural belief about who deserves access to libraries and archives and the knowledge that they contain? What is the relationship between depictions of libraries and archives in pop culture and society's deep-seated anxiety about the secrets contained in locked vaults that only allow the worthy to enter? They're big questions and I may not necessarily answer them in a way that fully satisfies any of us. Answering these questions will involve cracking into a lot of vaults that have been shut for a very long time. And how will I get into those vaults? Well, by using lockpicks that look a lot like narrative and rhetorical theory, some of which we talked about in episode one. You've seen the power the librarians are hiding down here? How much knowledge is locked away far from the people that can help the most? From the narrative perspective, I'll rely primarily on Jan Alber and his writings about unnatural narratology, as well as Karen Hellickson's work on alternate histories and counterfactual narratives. From the rhetorical perspective, I'll be using Dale Sullivan's theory of rhetoric as form control, and Lawrence Fry and Joshua Hanan's work on the use of rhetoric for social justice. And I'll explore social and cultural beliefs about libraries and their vasty depths through Gary Radford's work. So, we'll grab our lockpicks and shoulder our packs as we make our way through the library. It's gonna be loud, dirty, and dangerous, and we might have to blow some of the doors clean off their hinges, 
but sometimes you have to make a little mess in order to build it back up in a better way. And it will be a hell of a thing to experience, y'all. I got something black and sexy and prepare to do some funky poaching. Anxiety in the Archives is written, produced, and narrated by Elizabeth Hedrick. You can find episodes, transcripts, and references in the show notes or by visiting anxietyinthearchives.com. If you'd like to start a conversation with me about what you've heard, please feel free to find me on Twitter at archiveanxiety. The theme song for Anxiety in the Archives is Mind Control by Half Cocked. This song and all other episode music can be found on freemusicarchive.org. The cover art for Anxiety in the Archives was created by Matt Davis. This project couldn't have been born without the support of my committee, Gretchen Busel, Ashley Bender, and Dundee Lackey, who willingly ventured into unknown ground with me. I'd like to thank everyone that allowed me to interview them for this episode, including Dundee and Brett, and everyone who lent their voices to this episode and brought life to the books that I love, including Matt. I'd also like to thank Harvest House for always providing a safe port in the middle of my academic storm. And finally, thank you for listening. Please join me next time for The Library as Infinite Space Part 1. Let's get lost. <laughs>